We are looking at 2 Thessalonians in an expository series of lessons on Sunday night, having studied Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, and then now in the second letter, three chapters in this wonderful epistle, and one that we need to pay close attention to, as is the case with all of God's Word. In our last study together in the second chapter, in the initial verses of that chapter through verse 12, we noted specifically and concentrated heavily on what the Apostle Paul was writing to the Thessalonians concerning the great falling away. And the reason he brings up the falling away, part of that reason for bringing it up was to demonstrate to the Thessalonians that the second coming of Christ was not uh, was not imminent in the sense that uh, it was guaranteed that he was going to return during their lifetime. You remember that in the first epistle, he had written to correct some misapprehensions they had about their loved ones who had died in Christ and their concern that those loved ones had missed their reward because they had died before the Lord came and that since they had died and the Lord had not come and they thought he was going to come, right away after his ascension to the Father, he would come back very soon that those loved ones were going to lose their reward. Paul wrote to them and corrected that misapprehension, but he also follows up in this second epistle to reassure them further that the second coming of Christ was something that was not going to occur immediately until something else occurred, and that was the great falling away about which we studied last time. And so he wrote in the early part of the second chapter of Second Thessalonians to tell them not to be shaken in mind, not to be troubled either by a false teacher or by a word of mouth that was um, not reliable or by letter, an epistle as if from us, as he wrote, as though the day of Christ had come. Don't be deceived, he said, by any means. And then he went on to say that that day, that is the second coming of Christ, which will, of course, usher in the, the judgment scene and uh, an eternity of bliss for the faithful and of punishment for the unrighteous. He said, that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed. He calls him the son of perdition. And we spent some time then talking about what Paul wrote concerning this description and the man of sin and the papacy that uh, grew out of the apostate church there from Rome and all of that that is so descriptive in terms of what we have seen develop fits so perfectly and harmoniously with the prediction that Paul made about that great apostasy. And we studied that last time through verse 12. He also, in the latter part of that description of the man of sin, the son of perdition, he said that there will be those who will be deceived by the lawless one, who will come with uh, wonders and signs, power, but he calls them lying wonders, lying signs, in other words, powers that will deceive, and that the unrighteous uh, will be deceived. They will perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And then in verse 11, he mentions that God will send them strong delusion. In other words, God will allow them to be deceived if they are determined to reject the truth and to believe the lie. Because verse 12, he points out that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth 
but notice, had pleasure in unrighteousness. And that is certainly a very sobering reminder of how important it is that we have the proper attitude toward the Word of God and that we not go to that study of, our word, of the Word of God with a predetermined notion or idea about what the Word says, that we treat it fairly, that we go to it with a fairness and a belief in its inspiration and with the attitude of the prophet of old, Speak, Lord, thy servant heareth. But if we are determined, if we are determined to reject truth and not to have the proper attitude, then God is not going to overwhelm us in some arbitrary fashion and compromise our free will which he has given us in creating us as free moral agencies. And he will allow us to believe that lie, that strong delusion, and he will ultimately allow that to occur. We looked at another passage by way of review that reminds us of this very principle, this phenomenon, concerning the fact that for those who are so determined to reject the obvious truth of God and to go their own way that God ultimately will give them up. He will allow them to go that way and to believe that strong delusion. Remember verse 28 of Romans chapter 1? And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting being filled with unrighteousness, all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness. He goes on through this list. Who knowing the righteous judgment of God, verse 32 of Romans 1, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. God gave them over to that debased mind because they did not, here's the key, like to retain God in their knowledge. And there are many, tragically, in that kind of situation with that kind of mindset today who have determined that they are not going to be seekers and lovers of truth, and God has allowed them to imbibe that strong delusion and to believe that lie. Now then, as we conclude our study of this chapter in this lesson tonight, 2 Thessalonians 2, beginning in verse 13, we see a very, very stark, sharp, contrast. Having discussed and having warned of the falling away and what would come before the Lord returns, he then turns back to contrast these at Thessalonica with those who did not receive and love the truth and had pleasure in unrighteousness. Notice verse 13. But, there's the contrast, but in contrast to those who had no pleasure in, in righteousness but had pleasure in unrighteousness, those who did not believe the truth, you are a contrast to them, he writes to the Thessalonians. But we, but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you. And notice how he refers to them. Brethren, beloved by the Lord. And as we think for just a moment before we go further, as we think about this contrast, it ought to remind us of something that is vitally important, and that is that if the whole world believes a lie, that if the whole world has, has pleasure in unrighteousness, and very few of us are left who are lovers of truth and practitioners of truth, we take solace and comfort in the fact 
that we are beloved by the Lord. That is a phrase that ought to bring a tremendous amount of comfort and satisfaction to those who are striving to do the right thing no matter what happens to this country, no matter what happens to this world in which we, uh, in which we live. We can still be and are beloved by the Lord if we are not among those who were discussed earlier who had no pleasure in righteousness but rather pleasure in unrighteousness. If we are brethren... Beloved by the Lord because of our faithfulness, then we have something that is worth more than all of these world's goods combined, worth more than anything in this world, and that is we have a hope about which he will write in a few verses from now as we continue our study, a good hope as he refers to it in a few verses from this one. But notice, brethren... We're brethren. We should never take that word for granted. We should never take that relationship for granted, that we are brethren beloved by the Lord. If we are brethren, that is, if we are those who have obeyed the gospel and we are those who are partakers of the like precious faith, the gospel of Christ, we are brothers and sisters in Christ and we are beloved by the Lord. But why are we beloved by the Lord? What is the difference between those who are brethren, those who are beloved by the Lord, and those whom he has described in the earlier verses who had no pleasure in righteousness but rather pleasure in unrighteousness? Here's the key. We are those who've been chosen for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Now we need to spend a few minutes reminding ourselves of what kind of choice we're talking about here, how it is that we have been chosen for salvation from the beginning. And of course, primarily keep in mind he's writing to Gentiles here who always were purposed in God's plan from the beginning. It was always God's intention to ultimately bring in the Gentiles. Yes, the gospel initially went to uh, the Jews initially, but obviously it was God's determination, God's purpose, uh, always, all the way back to that promise to, to Abraham where we are first informed of the blessings that would come ultimately to all men. The Gentiles were in that purpose. And that was a part of God's plan from the beginning to choose the Gentiles as well as the Jews, not just the Jews, for salvation. But the key is how are they chosen? Was it the case that God chose a specific number of individuals, as we have talked about in, uh, in many lessons, especially in the series on Calvinism? Was it the fact that God chose individuals, a certain number to be saved, a certain number to be lost? We've already seen clearly from Scripture that that is not the case. But what he did choose is that the Gentiles would be brought into the covenant relationship with God at the appropriate time. That was God's purpose that the Gentiles not be excluded, but that they be included in God's plan for saving mankind. But the process as to how that would be accomplished is hereby set forth in this text as well as in others. Through sanctification. What is sanctification? Being set apart. He has chosen from the beginning that all who would be saved, including the Gentiles, would be saved in a certain way. How? By being sanctified or set apart by the Spirit. 
The Spirit's work is sanctification through the teaching of the Spirit, as we have often talked about. That's, the, that's God's part, is through the revelation of His will by the Spirit. There's no way that we would know anything about how to be sanctified, how to become set apart for a holy use, which is the idea of sanctification. There'd be no possibility of our knowing how to even do that, how to begin to do that, if it were not for the revelation of the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit. Sanctification by the teaching of the Spirit, that's God's part, but belief in the truth is our part. And so you have God's part and man's part, and that's true throughout Scripture. There's another passage of interest along these lines that we've studied in the past when we were studying 1 Peter. And it is at the very beginning of Peter's first epistle. And it's interesting to compare these two statements. One from Paul here in 2 Thessalonians 2, uh, verse 13. And this one by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia... Now here it is, verse 2. Elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit. There it is again, right here. Sanctification by the Spirit. Sanctification of the Spirit. Same thing. Now listen to the rest of Peter's statement. For obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now I think it's interesting to compare Paul's statement here in 2 Thessalonians 2.13 with Peter's in 1 Peter 1 and verse 2. First of all, you have the sanctification of the Spirit or by the Spirit that are identical statements, really. But then you have statements that are also identical, though not in word, but in meaning. As you look at 2 Thessalonians 2.13, it is this phrase, belief in the truth. In Peter's statement, it is for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. It's interesting to compare the phrase belief in the truth with the phrase for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Christ because what that helps us to appreciate, if we don't already, is that belief in the truth involves what? Obedient belief. It involves being obedient. The faith that saves is the faith that obeys. And the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ is significant there because that is a reference to what takes place in obedience to the gospel culminating in baptism because the sprinkling of the blood of Christ occurs in one place and in one place only and that is when our bodies are buried in water that is when the blood of Christ is sprinkled as it were that's the figure that is alluded to here the same figure that is alluded to by uh, the Hebrews writer in Hebrews chapter 2 we'll look at it in a moment in a moment that's the application in other words of the blood of Christ not the sprinkling of the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. In Hebrews 2, 13 and 14, uh, he talks about, well, verse 14 rather. Uh, he says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy them who had the power of death. And what? And release those who through, uh, who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. But if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer 
sprinkling the unclean elsewhere the Hebrews writer writes if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God and so as he speaks of the uh, flesh and blood that uh, Jesus partook of as he became uh, as he became human as well as divine, and in the sacrifice that he made uh, on the cross, that is elsewhere described in the Ephesian letter as being what the sprinkling of the blood of Christ. The sacrifice is is uh, described as the blood of Christ that was shed in his death, but is applied where is applied in baptism. In Hebrews 10, look at that passage for just a moment. In Hebrews 10 and verse uh, 22. In Hebrews 10 verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having, that's perfect tense, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Our hearts sprinkled from a consciousness of evil. When? When our bodies were washed in pure water. What was sprinkled? The water? No, the body was washed in water. The sprinkling was the sprinkling of the blood of Christ. And so that sprinkling to which Peter alludes in 1 Peter 1, for obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, that sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ is a figurative reference to the application of the blood, but it is clear that that blood or that sprinkling of that blood, as it were, takes place in what? In baptism. And so the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean, that cannot do anything except purify the flesh. But what about the sprinkling of the blood of Christ? The sprinkling of the blood of Christ, it cleanses the conscience from dead works to serve the living God. It purifies from sin. But where is that purification to take place? That purification takes place in one process and one process only. What is that process? Baptism for the remission of sins. And so when Paul writes to the Thessalonians and says, sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, and Peter says sanctification of the Spirit and for obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Christ. The two are identical expressions with different words, identical meanings. Belief in the truth is obedience to the truth culminating in baptism where the blood of Christ is sprinkled, as it were, is sprinkled to cleanse our conscience. And the specific passage to which I was alluding is Hebrews 9, 13 and 14. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Notice, the sprinkling, the unclean under the old covenant, 
those animal sacrifices and the sprinkling of that blood. The antitype of that is the sprinkling of the blood of Christ. Peter refers to it for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Christ. When does that take place? In baptism. And so when you look at passages like Hebrews 9, 13, and 14, and you see the figure that is used of the blood that is sprinkled in baptism, as it were, and you see Peter's reference to it in 1 Peter 1 and verse 2, and then you see belief in the truth here in 2 Thessalonians 2, 13, and you put it all together, it is clear that belief in the truth is not faith only, but belief in the truth is obedient belief culminating in baptism where the blood of Christ is applied and only where the blood of Christ is applied. And so it is important to appreciate the fact that, yes, God has predetermined, he has chosen that a certain group of people will be saved. Who are they? Those who express their faith in obedience to the gospel and become his children in so doing. That is, those who believe in the truth. And he further reinforces that in the next verse in our study, verse 14. To which he called you. To which what? To the salvation. The salvation to which he called you. The salvation to which he called you, to which he refers in verse uh, 13, that salvation to which he called you by what? The gospel. The gospel is that which calls. The gospel is that which leads us to salvation. We're called to salvation, but there's only one way to be called to salvation, and that is through the gospel. And the only way to answer that call is by obedience to the gospel, as we have just outlined, in obeying the truth through belief that leads you to repent, confess, and be buried in baptism for the remission of sins. To which he called you by our gospel for what purpose? For the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The call comes from the gospel. Only those who answer that call will be saved. Those who are predetermined to be saved are only the ones who answer the call of the gospel. In other words, God has predetermined not that a certain number of individuals will be saved and a certain number lost. He's predetermined that only those who answer the call of the gospel will be saved. All others will be lost. That's it. Unless we obey the gospel of Christ, Unless we answer that call of the gospel through the word of God that comes by the Spirit, we have no possibility of salvation. No possibility of obtaining the goal. And what is that goal? The goal is glory. The call is the gospel. By answering the call in belief, repentance, confession, and baptism, we become children of God with a new goal in life. That goal being what? Glory. The obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And oh, how we need to contemplate that glory, anticipate that glory. Think about that glory and what it will be like when, as John in 1 John 3, 2, for example, says, we don't know, it has not yet appeared what we shall be, but we know we'll be like him. We'll see him as he is. We'll be like him. This old physical body will, will no longer be. And we'll have that glorified body. And we are being, we are being trans, uh, transformed every day that we live. If we're applying ourselves to the Christian life to be more like him. And ultimately we will be like him when we see him as he is. And when we obtain the glory 
of our Lord Jesus Christ about which Paul writes here in this verse, verse 14. Therefore, verse 15, he says, therefore, because of that glory that awaits you as a faithful child of God, as one who can be called beloved by the Lord, as a brother or sister in Christ Jesus, stand fast because of what awaits you, stand fast and hang on. Stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now at the time that Paul penned these words, it was most appropriate for him to classify the teaching of God in two ways, oral and written, because the word, the written word, was not in its complete and final form. No, these were the earliest epistles that Paul himself wrote. And so obviously the New Testament was not in its final written form, and much of what he had taught the Thessalonians he had taught by word, that is by oral teaching. But ultimately it would all be in its final written form. Therefore for us to hold the traditions, we hold the traditions that we find recorded here, inspired traditions. Not the traditions of men, but inspired traditions. And we have to appreciate the fact that that word traditions is used in two senses in Scripture. Sometimes it is used in a negative sense to describe the traditions of men that have nothing to do with the inspired traditions that Paul speaks of here. For example, in Mark 7 and verse 9, as a part of Jesus' teaching, he said, All too well speaking to some of the Jews of his time. All too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. And so there were traditions of men then, and tragically there are traditions of men today that are totally contrary to the word of God. But when Paul says, hold the traditions which you were taught, he's talking about the inspired teaching, the inspired traditions that came from him and from the other inspired uh, apostles and uh, those who had those miraculous gifts to impart the word, and it was in its oral and written form, combination of those two, until ultimately that which is perfect or complete came, as Paul wrote about it in 1 Corinthians 13, and therefore the traditions are recorded for us. Now there are those, obviously, since this was finalized, who have claimed they have had a further word from the Lord, and there are those who are still claiming they're getting further words from the Lord. But they are not. Because this word says those words they claim to be getting from the Lord cannot be coming from the Lord. Because if they are, then they're contradicting what this book teaches. Because this book says when that which is perfect or complete, meaning the New Testament, has come, that which is in part, which means any other word from the Lord, will be done away and all other miraculous gifts. Therefore, I must rely upon this and this alone. But we're to hold fast to it. Stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught. And that admonition to stand fast is in a present imperative mood that says, keep on standing. You've got to keep on standing. And you dare not turn back. And then he writes, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself, verse 16, 
and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace. Verse 17, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. What a thought. May our Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father, who has what? Loved us and has done what? Has given us what kind of consolation? Everlasting consolation. The effect of the consolation that comes from God is an everlasting effect. Everlasting effect. You are consoled tonight if you're a faithful child of God. If you'll hold fast the inspired traditions that have been given, that consolation that you now experience will be for how long? Everlasting. It'll never end. All you have to do, all you have to do is hold on, stand fast, remain faithful, and the consolation that you have now as a result of that faithfulness and the knowledge that you can have that you are where you need to be and walking with the Lord as you need to walk with the Lord and you can know that you are or that you're not by this word. When you know that you are based upon you, your knowledge that you've brought your life into harmony with this book, the consolation that comes from that, the joy and the peace, that is everlasting as long as you keep on walking. You have eternal life in promise. You have the consolation that comes with that promise eternally as well. There is no consolation. There is no hope that can compare with the hope and the consolation that Paul describes concerning these Thessalonians and all faithful Christians for all time to come along with them that is found here. Good hope, but here's the key. How does it come? Everlasting consolation and good hope by grace. By grace. Which reminds us that without the grace of God, there could be no everlasting consolation. There could be no hope. There is no hope without the grace of God. But we're also reminded in this very text and so many others that could be cited that it cannot be grace alone because our hearts are to be comforted and established, verse 17, in every good what? Word and work. It comes by grace, but our hearts are established and we appropriate and accept that grace by responding with good words and good works. In language and in life, we are to be faithful. And if in language and life we are faithful to God, until the Lord comes again or until we die, the consolation that we now have because of our faithfulness to him now will be everlasting. And the joys unspeakable as we go to be with the Lord, see him as he is, have this old vile body transformed into an indestructible and glorious body, and enjoy forevermore the comfort and the consolation that is described here in this text. What a contrast between the earlier description of those who've been duped and are being duped by the man of sin and the son of perdition. What a contrast between them and the beloved of the Lord. As he says, but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord. Why? 
because you have answered the call of the gospel and you are on your way to obtaining the goal that comes from obedience to that gospel and that goal is glory. And to obtain it, make sure that your language and your life harmonize with the teaching of this word. Is that true of you tonight? If not, we plead with you to make it true of you and you can by bringing your life into harmony with the will of God through obedience to the gospel of Christ, believing that he is the Christ, repenting of your sins, confessing him to be the Christ, being buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. If you've done that, but you know you are no longer on that road to glory, that you are not realistically going to obtain it because you've turned your back upon the faithfulness necessary in order to obtain it, come home in repentance and confession of any sin that needs to be confessed in a public way that we may pray with you and for you to the God of glory who will guide you once again into glory as you once again come home to the path that will lead you there. As we stand to sing, will you come?